Hello and welcome to Phil's Breakfast Metal episode 73. In this episode I'm going to be going over the like primary releases or release releases I see as important from Roadrunner Records between 1986 and 1995. Unlike say like the I Void Hanger episode we did uh, last time, this isn't so much going to be a celebration of the label. I think uh, we all know these days Roadrunner Records are very much a trend-chasing label. But what's really interesting about this time period with them is it very much charts the kind of popular peak of like death and thrash metal and a few other sort of sub-genres of extreme metal and by looking at it year on year you can really see the evolution of those genres. This was initially meant to be a follow-up to episode 36, the one I did on Earache Records, which is exactly the same time period and shows kind of a, a quite different thing where that very much charts the rise of like grind through like from punk into grind and then how like death metal got mixed in there and the kind of rawer more underground side of this this is very much the what would be considered the mainstream of death metal i believe like roadrunner records definitely had like the sort of cream of the crop in terms of those early 90s death metal bands and, and a fair few of the classic thrash bands as well but like I think the two episodes are a good kind of counterpoint to each other. I meant to record this ages ago. In fact, 36 episodes ago I meant to record this. But yeah, if you haven't heard it, go back and listen to that episode because I think these two will work well next to each other. So unlike the Eric episode, I'm not going to be able to cover every single album they put out because one, I don't think they've all held up as well as a lot of those Eric albums like Eric albums but also because they put out about triple the amount of albums especially if you include all their sub labels in there uh, I won't be deep diving on any of them either because this would be like a 20 hour long podcast if I did so it'd be more surface level to say the primary aim of this episode is to just sort of chart that evolution of the genres through what was kind of critically acclaimed at the time so Roadrunner Records was founded in 1980 as a division of the Warner Music Group. So already you can see this is like massive label backing rather than Eric's kind of small startup. And I think they were originally used to import music from Europe but quite quickly started hosting American bands and so on on their, on their label. They're fairly fairly international label although i think they sort of primarily deal in american stuff so that brings us to the first year and this is 1986 and really there wasn't a huge amount that was particularly well known to me from this era other than like roadrunner's first real breakout success which was king diamond's fatal portrait so after the split up of merciful fate they did their first two albums and um hank sherman and kim Ruz, like guitarist and drummer quit the band so they sort of reformed things and king diamond's one of those interesting things where that's actually a band name like uh it's not a solo project it is three of the remaining members so king diamond himself michael denner and timmy hansen the bass player went on and they thought the best way to continue selling the band or at least uh, i remember king diamond saying this in interviews was to use his name because he was the sort of famous name from the project and this is you know long pre the internet so i can understand why they they went with this to keep selling their albums and it, it clearly worked because fatal portrait uh actually like made it into the billboard top 200 albums which is the first time roadrunner records had 
ever manage that. But they also picked up uh, guitarist and Lee Roque and uh, drummer Mickey D, who is now most famous for being Motorhead's drummer until like the end from 1993 till the end of their career. But yeah, so Fatal Portrait, I think, is a really good album for. Um, sort of bridging the gap between the that early era of Merciful Fate and what would come with King Diamond. It's sort of... Um, it, it is definitely sits between the two because it doesn't have quite the cinematic bombast and over-the-topness of later King Diamond albums. And it's more focused on short songs rather than one continuing narrative for a whole thing. Although the first five tracks, I believe, do tell a story. It's got all the classic staples of a great King Diamond album, uh, like amazingly guitar work, really good like old school heavy metal riffing. It's probably like kind of the smoothest production job they've got up to this point in time. Uh, like Andy Road definitely helps set things off as well. Like his guitar work is a real standout in there, and King Diamond's vocals are more ridiculous than ever at this point. It's this funny as well, this is down where we open up on, because it's definitely going to be a divisive one. I know King Diamond is definitely one of those vocalists you either love or hate. Personally, I absolutely love his ridiculous, like, falsetto mixed with his kind of pantomime evil voice he does between, like, while not doing those higher sections. Yeah, Fatal Portrait, I... I think stands as one of the greats. Although for me, and we'll really get into this more in a bit, I only really love like the first four albums, like the first two Merciful Fate and the first two King Diamond albums. And after that, I start losing interest in the band a bit. But yeah, Fatal Portrait is pretty much great riffing, great heavy metal start to finish with that kind of touch of satanic evil that King Diamond brings to it. Like, I know he's somewhat credited with some of the ideas that went into black metal, although you can't hear that at all in the music. It's very much, to me, sounds like traditional heavy metal still, just with that slight evil edge. But possibly like the the obsessive satanic lyrical themes uh, and like ghostly kind of nature to it helps that influence. The only the only issue this album has for me really is after those those two Merciful Fate albums, Melissa and Don't Break the Oath, both have some of the greatest heavy metal covers I can think of. Like Melissa in particular is just this absolutely haunting kind of strange artwork of a skull. The front cover of Fatal Portrait is so fucking ugly. And it actually I think it's really lucky they went with the King Diamond band name. Because if they hadn't, there is no way, if I was in a music store in like 86, 87, and I picked up Fatal Portrait, that I would have bought that had I not seen it attached to someone, like, so someone's name I knew, like, and it, as any fans of Merciful Fate will, will remember King Diamond's name. Obviously, I wasn't even born yet in 1986, but I, I could see that, that sort of strand of logic, yeah. Cover definitely lets them down, and for something as kind of atmospheric and sort of with such in-depth lyrical content, it feels like a really disappointing thing to get wrong. But yeah, like it's a really interesting thing, and if you find Lakes of King Diamond to have a bit too much of like the keyboards or over-the-top stuff, or even just getting a bit too wrapped up in the lyrical themes, this album's nicely in the middle where it is more just focused on 
great riffing and catchy hooks rather than really trying to sort of put that full concept album story in like, you know, a centerpiece. another relatively quiet year for um roadrunner there's quite a few albums that are kind of outside my my kind of realm of expertise like racer x put out second heat uh lizzie borden visual lies which all very much feel like bands that are somewhat like left in the 80s apologies though if they those are great albums and I've just completely missed them. One I'm less familiar with that I know sort of has a fairly legendary status is Sacred Reich's Ignorance, which is the first, like, kind of proper classic thrash album I think we see on the label. Um, another really uh, well-loved album that totally goes over my head is Carnivore's Retaliation, which is, if you're not, not aware, Pete Steele's, like, pre-typo negative kind of more like angry punk band um it's something for me much like say stormtroopers of death i just don't think the jokes have dated that well into 2020 like some of the stuff just comes across as quite uh i don't know sort of offensive and insensitive at this point but again i've not listened to it for a long time but yeah, i remember not really loving it last time i delved in also, apologies if you hate King Diamond, because there is a lot of that coming out uh, coming up. I think he pretty much puts out an album every year on this label. So yeah, the the other really big success from 1987 was King Diamond's second album, uh, Abigail, the the first like I think full concept album he did. Uh, this album, I think, is absolutely brilliant. I think it's the one time that sort of sound actually really worked for the band. They're 
Whereas the previous like album had the sort of intro in built into the first track, with with Abigail, we get a whole um, one minute thirty kind of very cinematic intro, sort of painting this picture of like a graveyard in in the pouring rain, which actually is a like quite cleverly is a thing from the very close of the album that we we sort of then yeah you get foreshadowed in this opening track um and the album goes through telling this this story of like a couple going going to stay in like a, a haunted mansion and dealing with a kind of like a possession and it's it's very well set out like it, abigail really kind of reads like a classic horror movie script and it, it's paced in that way as well uh, the addition of like far more kind of keyboards and melodramatic stuff just really works for this. And at its core, this is still like a very classic metal album. There's still like that kind of focus, much like a Fatal Portrait, on massive hooks, great guitar solos, like brilliant heavy metal riffing, but with just that bit more of a cinematic edge. Like, there's still a lot of tracks that absolutely stand up on their own, like. Uh, the seventh day of July, nineteen seventy-seven. Uh, like seventy-seven. The title track, Black Horseman, or um, the Family Ghost. These are all really solid uh, tracks separately. And actually, on their recent live album, um, they played this in full, which I think really makes sense for the band. Like, this is definitely a concept that really works as a whole. Whereas I'd say, like, once you we get to some of the later ones, that's where the, the concept starts getting in the way. But for for me, Abigail, it doesn't at all. And I'd I'd say this is, you know, up there is one of the strongest things he's ever put out. And it, and it's just because there's no fat on it, none of it comes across awkwardly. Like this story really nicely fits the the kind of melodies of the song which is kind of incredible because it's you know a relatively complex tale but he keeps it kind of like with his vocals he keeps it melodic and catchy throughout and it for me it never really feels particularly labeled labored i mean obviously there is a certain degree to which the cheese is upped for this like this is a more silly album than something like melissa whereas melissa has quite like a kind of a darkness to it this is very kind of uh hammer horror campiness uh but it but it works and it, as i say it's still like a thoroughly enjoyable album and they sort of right the wrongs of the previous album of the cover to this is absolutely excellent this um sort of image of these two kind of very frightened horses dragging this sinister looking cart through a kind of muddy like down a muddy track in a pouring rain it just has like this feels like the opening to the horror story it's telling yeah it, it it's king diamond like putting out a near perfect album and i think scoring even higher on the billboard charts and sort of really putting roadrunner on the map with this one
1988 brings us into something I hadn't really mentioned. This label really dabbled in a lot of this at this time was the kind of like prog power metal that's ever so slightly adjacent to glam. Like the band, I just wasn't able to get into because I think it's just too big a research hole by itself, and I never really listened to. Our Fate's Warning, I think, put out a fair few albums. Uh, with Roadrunner Records in this year is uh, No Exit. But we also get the, I believe, second Vicious Rumours album, Digital Dictator, which was one going back to, it was all right, but I don't think Vicious Rumours quite hold up next to some of their contemporaries, like, like maybe like Jag Panzer or actually another band we'll get to from this year. So yeah, there's a fair amount of that kind of sound going on, as well as yeah, yet more music from... Racer X, there's like, and there's a fair few sort of decent, um, like compilations and live albums come out of this period. Like, they seem to have rights to like some of Motorhead stuff, or I don't know how much that's like re releases. But one of the like sort of really interesting albums from early in 1988 they put out was uh, Pestilence's debut, Malleus Maleficarum. We're 1988, uh, sort of a thrash slash death metal band from the Netherlands. I think this first album is more or less like the kind of more evil end of, of thrash metal. Like, there's more nods to stuff like Creator and this than there is sort of early Morbid Angel. There's certainly like a level of technicality to this album that. Yeah, Pestilence would become famed for being one of the real out there technical complex bands, especially with later releases. But this first one is more straightforward, although the guitar solos definitely show like a level of flair beyond a lot of their their like fresh contemporaries. The the vocals are done by uh, legendary vocalist Martin Van Drunen, although this early in his career. I will say his vocals are good, but they aren't like that voice we know him for. And this this is two years before he gets involved with um with Aspects and yeah, like I think we, we see an evolution in his vocals. The one thing actually this album does have going for it, that that sort of nod to the sodden creator, like German thrash scene, although actually kind of contemporary of that if you you look at the time period, I think it's the same year Persecution Mania comes out. Like that kind of it has the evil that they, those kind of records have. Maybe not quite as evil as those first two Sodom albums, but it it's got a real kind of uh like foreboding atmosphere to it, this kind of thrash. It just feels a lot more terrifying than a lot of like the American equivalents. And for some reason, as they get more technically competent pestilence somewhat lose that sound so everything will step up a notch from this like so they don't even have an official bass player on this album so they, they don't have like what tony Choi will later bring to the band say martin's vocals are going to get better but as all that stuff happens they sort of evolve into quite a different project and lose some of the the sort of horror of uh, of their debut a, a really it's a really solid album. Definitely not one of my favourites of theirs, but I think if you're if you're a big fan and have never gone back to to this first album, definitely worth a go. Uh, the other thing I should mention is this was officially put out on RC Records, which I think are like a sub label of Roadrunner. I've sort of just included them, 
Um, it was a bit messy doing the research for this, so the chances of me missing certain bands you like um, is very high. Like the the chance of my notes have got something slightly wrong in them is extremely high. So just a bit of forewarning. I'll try and cover as much as I can, but guaranteed I'll get something wrong. And the thing I'm really worried about this is guaranteed to happen somewhere is I'm going to have put a Roadrunner re-release in here rather than an original album. Another interesting album that came out this year on the label was Flossum and Jetsum's second album, No Place for Disgrace. So this Arizona-based thrash band are most famous for being the band that Jason Newstead was poached from. Their debut, Doomsday for the Deceiver, was the only one he appeared on. Um, and so before recording this, like, before going into this, Doomsday for the Deceiver was the only one I was really familiar with. And I think it's an absolutely excellent uh, brand of that old kind of thrash with like ridiculous helium vocals and like some quite kind of progressive song structures they do some really interesting stuff with like acoustic guitar like particularly on the title track for that album but the follow-up no place for disgrace is actually really good it, I, I think it's it's comparable in a lot of ways like doomsday for the deceiver is a bit of a messy album and it's a very rough and ready recording whereas no Place for Disgrace sounds a lot, like, chunkier. This band have always been really good at doing, like, great kind of um, sort of heavy riffing into massive solos. And then uh, Eric, a.k.a. the vocalist, does this kind of, like, good sort of mid-range thrash vocal that will suddenly burst into these absolutely ludicrous high-pitched screams. Um there's some interesting stuff going on with the lyrical content. If you're familiar with the album cover for this one, it the, the album cover is a really weird choice of it's two ridiculously buff samurai warriors, one down on his knees, about to kind of disembowel himself, and like the first song's all about that, which feels like kind of an odd choice for Thrash, but I, I think it certainly works, and it it somewhat beats the previous album, which was about a a giant monster called Flotzilla killing Satan, um, which is just fucking ridiculous. But yeah, it's quite fun. Like, um, yeah, and, and No Place for Disgrace is just one of these really solid thrash albums from that period. It's in that slightly more dated sound, the, the kind of that late 80s thrash with really high-pitched shrieking vocals doesn't seem to have held on in the same way the kind of i did say like the german scene i mentioned and stuff like uh, you know the slayer influence stuff like there wasn't any of this kind of style kept in the fresh revival really as far as i know everyone went kind of gruffer with the vocal approach but i've always been a fan of uh of that kind of style the the asian steel type thing and flotsam and jetsam at least up to this album are still really good at doing it and Troy Gregory, the new bass player, who's the only member that actually changed between the two albums, does a really good job of, uh, uh, you know, stepping into Jason Newsom's shoes. Like, his bass tone is really clear throughout, and he, he has a lot of technical bass lines. Like, this is a band who are very gifted players. Like, Flossum and Jetson's riffing is pretty complex for Thrash, and they all sound like a really tight, synced-up unit. How much of that studio trickery? Who knows? But like, it, it, this is definitely an album that was ambitiously technical for thrash metal at the time, but still, like at its core, is just a lot of really catchy, memorable thrash tracks. 
So a band that was totally new to me, or at least an album that was totally new to me uh, in the research for this, was Crimson Glory's second album, Transcendence. So this band seemed like they were going for uh, quite a while ahead of this, but their debut uh, self-titled Crimson Glory came out in 1986. And their follow-up, Transcendence, is this incredible um, progressive, like, prog power that that kind of genre this is a band that really put me in mind of queen's rights in particular that kind of well put together progressive heavy metal with a ludicrously good singer and midnight the vocalist for crimson glory absolutely steals the show now i think this kind of vocal style will certainly be like that kind of love it or hate it effect for for a lot of you but if you can appreciate decent like very high-pitched clean singing midnight is an absolute beast like the guys they just the opening track lady of winter i was blown away at the quality of the vocals the amount of variations he puts in his voice these these long held high notes like and just absolutely amazing vocal melodies throughout this the music is that interesting thing where actually it's relatively straightforward like verse chorus songs but but where none of the musicians really show off all that much until it gets to the solos which are these absolutely ridiculous face melting solos these absolutely mega shreds it's uh, this band listening to it as well for 1988 i really can't work out what happened to crimson glory where they didn't end up getting mentioned in the same breath as your uh fate's warning dream theater queen's rise or jag panzer all those kind of bands that are way more known crimson glory just never seemed to get that attention despite like there's a definite quality to this album. It's got a, like, the production to it's really good. I mean, the cover's kind of stupid, but then a lot of those bands are really rubbish album covers. The band's image is over the top, but I think it kind of works. Like, they all have, like, there's this great couple of great photos of them all in leather jackets with this real, like, glam rock hair and all wearing these kind of, like, Phantom of the Opera masks, like, long before Symphony X went down that route. Uh, it seems like their debut is also really well respected. I say I hadn't heard of the band. I actually heard their 1999 comeback album Astronomica. And it's a bit rubbish. Barring the really fun opening track War of the Worlds. It's pretty boring. And it doesn't stand up to Transcendence. I didn't even notice the vocals being quite as incredible. But on Transcendence they just stood out as just absolutely amazing. And even against that ridiculous guitar work. As I mentioned they like they totally steal the show. I've, I've read that it seems to be, like, something to do with, like, odd management and not really getting pushed. That, yeah, this band sort of somewhat dropped under the radar. But if you like any of those bands I've mentioned, I'd highly advise going back and giving Transcendence a go. The only real criticism I've got with it is it definitely peaks in the first five tracks. It's a ten-track album where the last five are probably the worst five of the album, which is a bit of a disappointing thing, but it opens very strongly. And it's, and even the disappointing ones are not bad tracks. They're still really good. It's just, yeah, my absolute favourites towards the start of the album. <laughs> Thank you. 
I apologise. There's going to be yet more uh, ridiculous, high-pitched, clean singing. I promise we'll get to some growls and uh, heavier death metal stuff soon. Uh, but yeah, next up we have King Diamond's Them, released in 1988. And this is the album where, for me, I, I start losing interest in King Diamond's sound. So... Ahead of this album, both Michael Demmer and Tinny Hansen have quit the band, who are the two guys who like sort of came along with them for Merciful Fate. So it's essentially King Diamond's the only original Merciful Fate guy at this point. And you know something's up with the album when the opening like opening song line of the album is Grandma. Um I, I think for me, them is the first point where we really get that concept over over kind of song structure and while it has great moments to it this is not by any means a bad album it's just too cheesy for me i can't deal with it and funny enough i remember uh when i was at uni we had a a friend who was sort of getting into metal was about 18 19 and we were showing him like you know gave him a whole pile of mp3s or like classic stuff and the two albums he described as being like the worst thing he ever heard both from i think the same time period is um king diamond's them and napalm death scum were like the opposite ends of the scale but both for him just unlistenable <laughs> now i, I go, don't agree with him this certainly is unlistenable i think it's got some really positive qualities to it but it doesn't quite top well it doesn't come close to topping those four previous like the two Mercy of eight two king diamond albums so i never really revisit this or much of the later material despite having a few sort of like great songs scattered throughout it and there's, there's more problems like the front cover is meant to be like a creepy looking house but it's just a big pink house like the color palette's kind of off and that doesn't help with the whole quite cheesy lyrical delivery so it's a shame like it, it's an album i want to love more but i i just i've never really been able to get into all right this brings us on to 1989 and although there is still more of the kind of prog power metal progressive metal heavy metal stuff on roadrunner we get start of a move to some other stuff so it's another lizzie borden album fate's warning put out perfect symmetry King Diamond puts out yet another album, The Conspiracy. So I think he has, well, I think they have five albums over the, the first five years we're covering. Um, get uh, Laze Rocket, I never know quite how to pronounce that band name, put out Annihilation Principle, which is a pretty solid thrash album. They're definitely one of those like ones that get a bit lost in the kind of massive thrash bands that came out in this period, but they're, they're a pretty decent band with some cool, like, slightly almost crossover leanings in there. And it's definitely a well-executed album. I think it's relatively late into their career by that point, like the third or fourth. But there's a couple of really notable Thrash albums this year. Firstly, we have the third Sepultura album, Beneath the Remains. So, following on from Schizophrenia, they got a new guitarist in, in the form of Andreas Kisser and... I think this is the album where they just, like, step into Overdrive. Like, this is where they become, like, the absolutely legendary act they are known to be. Like, they've been going five years at this point. They were starting to become really competent musicians. Um, 
there's a few things that there's still, I guess, some evolution to come. Like, we're still not hearing, like, Maxi's, like, real trademark uh, gruff delivery. It's still, like, that's still kind of in development. But the band are getting more technical. Like, there's definitely kind of more flashiness in the guitar work. They The album starts that really cool intro into the title track and... Like, it's just a really strong opening, actually, this album. Side A of Beneath the Remains is absolutely classic with a title track, Inner Self, Mass Hypnosis. Like, this is such a good opening 20 minutes to a fresh album. Something I've noticed with most Sepultura albums, i definitely say, like, the first half is stronger than the second, but second half is still pretty good. It's got great tracks like Slave to Pain and... Uh, primitive future like it's still really decent and the other thing that is the biggest step up for this band is the cover is absolutely brilliant like schizophrenia is one of the all-time worst album covers like it's just hideous whereas this this image of like a, a kind of painting of a skull but when you look closer there's all sorts of weird details weaved into it it's just an absolutely like mesmerizing cover and they would go on to have quite a few like this i think sepulture or a band when i was first getting into metal i always remember being quite intrigued with because you pick up a cover of something like chaos ad in cd shop and go what the hell is this it has quite a kind of ethereal vibe to it the only other thrash band i think really had a similar effect on me at that age was was slayers stuff like rain in blood like those kind of covers I found quite disturbing in a in a similar way. Whereas, you know, even as a young teenager the the whole Megadeth rattlehead thing came across a little bit a little bit silly. But yeah, I'm getting off track. Like Sepultura were, you know, about to hit the absolute height of their power here. The like they are going to improve as musicians as the albums go on, but Beneath the Remains is like I think still to this day stands as like stone cold classic, like absolute kind of, you know, top tier thrash metal with their own kind of slightly inventive spin on it. And they're sort of getting heavier of it as, as well. Like they're not a band, they're not a death metal band, but there is a touch of that kind of death metal intensity to this that a lot of like their American peers weren't quite matching. And it, it's different to how the German stuff was getting heavier as well. Like, it, they, they both take slightly different paths with it.
absolutely god-awful album covers. This brings us to Annihilator's debut, Alice in Hell, which is an album I absolutely love. Been a big fan of this one for a long time. This is the Canadian, if you're not familiar with them, Canadian thrash band, very much the um, the kind of project of guitarist uh, Jeff Waters. This album, um, like I think he said before, like he very much recorded this as kind of more of a solo project where he kept getting people in, especially in the early days. So all guitars and bass are recorded by Jeff, and then you have Randy Rampage on lead vocals. Jeff's still doing uh, backing vocals, most notably the high pitch uh, Alice screams in the uh, opener Alice in Hell, and then uh, Ray Hartman on drums. Like this lineup would change so massively over the years. Like I, I think Ray might be on the next album, but beyond that, like Randy doesn't last with them, and also tragically passed away in 2018. But yeah. Uh, like Annihilator are one of those bands like who will eternally be cursed by writing their best ever material on their debut. Like Jeff Waters had been training as a classical guitarist ahead of time, um, so was this already incredibly gifted musician, and like that that is shown from the opener Crystal Anne with this amazing two minute long like dueling acoustic guitar like intro it is one of the greatest intros in metal history i i'd go out on a limb and say it moves perfectly into that kind of creepy i believe it's a bass guitar at the start of alice in hell and, and alice in hell is just like absolutely legendary song that annihilator will be cursed to forever play live as long as they exist but yeah absolutely brilliant like totally in your face shredding riffs like amazingly guitar work again for a band where they didn't have a bass player like jeff's bass ability is absolutely brilliant as well he plays all with a pick and it's like really high up in the mix and often doing something quite interesting and counter to the guitars uh, whereas alice in hell is the the kind of like the catchy opener the songs get more kind of intense and weird as they go on. Like, Burns Like a Buzzsaw Blade has some really, um, really technical stuff. And actually, it keeps upping in technicality right towards the end. The final track, Human Insecticide, is utterly ridiculous. Yeah, and it's like almost like, but just on a 40-minute runtime, there is so many good riffs and like really intensely complex parts. What's interesting, though, is... Annihilator, despite like kind of their their upped intensity and speed, never came across as one of the truly like heavier end of the thrash bands because they always went for kind of quite a bright, clean production. I think Jeff's always been quite a fan of really letting the listeners know exactly what's going on with the guitar. He's truly like truly into uh like that, that kind of maybe not showing off but you know he's playing to the guitarists in the audience and and even like randy rampage's vocal approach is it's harsh but it's still got a certain melodicism to it like it's not it, it is more rooted in those bands we were talking about earlier the kind of flotsam and jetsam agent steel vocal approach rather than your kind of like harsher like slayer just like kind of gruff or like even like the sodom kind of vocal approach but yeah like this is the like the essential album from annihilator many many episodes back i reviewed their entire discography and i do think annihilator are a band that taken like a lot of tracks out of context of the albums they have a 
pretty fantastic discography, but there's only a couple where they really get it right, and Alice in Hell is by far and away the best of these. <laughs> side of Thrash, this brings us to Sodom's third album, Agent Orange, which I think is like their their properly major label debut, like the previous two were put out on Steamhammer Records. And there's a real evolution between uh, their second album, Persecution Mania, and Agent Orange. Now, personally, I think I really prefer that earlier stuff. Like, Persecution Mania is a really evil album, and it's one where you can properly see that, like, proto-black metal in their sound. Agent Orange is very different. It is a straight-up thrash metal album, in in my opinion. Like, it's still got a kind of nasty edge to it. Like, Tom Angel Ripper's vocals are always going to sound, like, harsh and evil, but they don't quite have have that unhinged satanic quality that uh, that first uh, first couple of albums had. There's um there's like some there's some amazing step ups in terms of production, like the album sounds way clearer. And I think actually some of that's probably just tied to the three musicians who were all on the previous album have just got good at playing. Considering they're a band that were like formed in like eighty two or something. So the really early stuff you hear of them, those first demos and EPs are teenagers who don't really know what they're doing. By this album, they clearly know what they're doing. These songs are really tight. The drumming, like Chris Witch Hunter, his his like double kick work on this is incredibly precise. Like Frank Blackfire's solos are now getting super technical. His guitar work is just really solid throughout. But there is that thing of this is now fresh metal. This is not. Uh, protected by that kind of layer of just being evil as hell like you now need to be technical to compete and and I think these guys really do Agent Orange is an absolutely brilliant album in that in that kind of vein they do throw in a few interesting ideas on this album there's like great that great bit in Tired and Red where in the middle of the song it goes into like a a kind of quite melancholy acoustic breakdown also, uh, there's a certain thing going on with the album cover where I believe Sodom briefly attempted to sort of have their own Eddie with the reoccurring 
dude with a gas mask. Um, although on this one from Persecution Mania, he's been upgraded to have an underslung grenade launcher on his machine gun. Perfect for use in that plane he's currently standing in. Uh, I just noticed my my first uh, fuck up of the episode. Turns out actually all those early Sodom albums, including this and the next few, are on um, Steam Hammer and I believe Roadrunner either like reissues or like American reissues. Um, they put out a version of this album in 1989, so I guess I can leave this in here. But yeah, strictly not the the original pressing of uh, this this vinyl. Right, let's move on to one um, that like was definitely on RC Records, the Roadrunner subsidiary. This is Pestilence's second album, Consuming Impulse. So whereas that first album was very much, as I say, like rooted in thrash. This is where I think Pestilence switch into being a full-on death metal band. Martin Van Drunen's really found his voice on this one. Like His vocals are absolutely beastly on this. And they have that kind of strained how we're used to him having. Like The year after this, Asphyx will be putting out The Rack, which is one of his sort of legendary vocal performances. And I really think Consuming Impulse is up there as well. Like It's a really... Like, the vocals are the real highlight for me of it. Um, everything has just got faster and heavier from their previous one. The guitar work of the two Patricks is is really upped. Like, their lead playing in this is pretty damn intense. And uh, Marco Fodders, the drummer, is putting in a fantastic performance. Of this time period, I think this is definitely one of those legendary albums, if not quite, you know mention the same breath as your kind of morbid angels deaths etc it certainly has like a comparable energy to it i think maybe a few things slightly held this band back like i don't know what was going on with some of these uh some of these roadrunner bands at the time but this is yet another absolutely awful album cover the the kind of sort of screaming figure covered in ants but who appears to be screaming about something other than the fact he's covered in ants but if that's not bad enough for some reason that cover is not the full picture around it there's a green border which has no kind of color color correlation with the album cover they sort of did this on the first one but that looks all right whereas this one just yeah it's it's just an absolute eyesore but other than that this album is fucking spectacular like 37 minutes of incredibly intense music they do something i love for this style of death metal they don't put an intro on it the the opener dehydrated just kicks things off immensely intensely like you that's that's exactly what you're getting for the next you know half hour or so it's just this super fast aggressive death metal the only kind of slight issue I have with this album, because because they would be something that would be included more and more as they go on, is Martin Van Drunen is credit, credited with the bass, and the bass doesn't really feature in the mix. Um, it's there, but it's it's not it's not really that audible. And there's something about this album where I just find the guitars are ever so slightly weedy i think like the writing and playing is spot on but that guitar tone just could have a bit more of a heft a bit more chunkiness to it and it really then then this would be like an absolute classic as it stands it, it is an incredible album but i just have those slight kind of uh 
slight issues with with some of the production choices and to say I'm not, not a big fan of the cover but overall no real complaints here the thing is as well with this point pestilence are kind of known i'd say at least the way i came across them they were very much mentioned in the same breath as bands like atheist and cynic and at this point in time that totally isn't relevant there is i can't see any jazz influence on this album this is pretty pure death metal with the only other influence probably coming from thrash metal because we're in 1989 these are still kind of relatively early years for death metal for the Eric records at the same point in time 1989 we hear like the second carcass album god flesh is uh, street cleaner uh, bolt thrower put out their second album realm of chaos morbid angel their their debut altars of madness so combine that with what we just heard and you can see we're getting into that kind of like early death metal like sort of the edge of fresh starting to become old hack because Annihilator were pretty late to the thrash game. I think one of the reasons they've never been quite as well respected. So yeah, we're hearing sort of like the death throes of um, of thrash metal and the real rise of death metal. And as we go on, um, I'll probably have to speed up my coverage because the amount of classic albums starts co- like going up and they come out pretty pretty thick and fast um the other thing is i think we're going to start seeing the tail off in popularity of those kind of prog power albums because as death metal comes out grunge is also on the rise and like that kind of prog power thing was the antithesis of grunge and yeah certainly became very uncool at this point in time so as i mentioned i was definitely gonna make mistakes in this i've had to go back and insert this one because i couldn't miss it Uh, absolutely like one of the most important albums from 1989 and really like at least for the label but if not like 
death metal in general, obituary put out their debut, Slowly We Rot. So at this point in time, you know, we've just spoken about Pestilence and bands like Cannibal Corpse were pushing death metal into this kind of faster, more aggressive style. Um, obituary were happy to get a little slower and uglier with it than their counterparts, with this just immensely nasty sound. And like the thing that really stands out about Obituary's debut is the incredible drum sound. Like the guitars are kind of like a bit buzzy and will get like chunkier and more filled out in time with later albums. But on this one, like the thing that really drives it is that really pounding like drum groove throughout. And uh, Obituary were always the band that had the really notable grooves of the big death metal ones. They were the, you know, that was the core of their sound. And you can see why it went on to like get reincorporated into hardcore uh, many years later. Another thing that's really stand out about this, much like with the Pestilence one, is just the amazing vocal performance. John Tardy's like ridiculous, like, like zero pronunciation, like bizarre scream is, is amazing. And it still stands up as like, some of the really cool vocals from this time period. There is that whole thing of like whether these songs actually had lyrics or not. There's there's the odd like intelligible word, but because they never wrote them down, I'm not sure these songs actually have them or not. And it doesn't really matter. Like his style fits kind of the ugliness of this. The album cover also fits in really well. It's kind of kind of a bit like naff, but I can see at the time really works of the de the decaying body on the street and what really sells it is obituary just have a fantastic logo that kind of like spiky metallic covered in blood it's just a really notable band logo and yeah the the album is really well put together we have like the core of um what would be obituary's lineup are already kind of cemented this with john uh john on vocals and uh uh brother donald on, on drums and the guitarist uh trevor pires uh, like that would be the core of the band onwards i think they'd lose their bass player off this album and we have like recurring lead guitarist alan west which i think his his lead style on this is is decent enough like he he's he's a solid player but like with the next album he'll very much be um yeah, be improved on. But yeah, like, I for many people, Slowly We Rot is, like, the peak of a victory. It's not my personal favourite, but I can totally accept that view on it.
moves us on to 1990 and there's a few I'm gonna skip over so interestingly Rodan put out like they never had Megadeth on their roster but they put out Chris Poland's uh Return to Metropolis and Marty Freeman's Dragon Kiss so both solo albums from guys from the band like guitarists from the band um we get the very influential ex-hoarders slaughter in the vatican which you know slight ever so slightly predates like pantera's move into that sound although i think ex-hoarder have kind of shared the um shared the credit for making that sound with pantera and have no hard feelings or, or kind of recriminations of being ripped off. Malevent Creation come out with their debut, The Ten Commandments. Um, we'll get to a, a Malevent Creation album in a bit, but I'll skip over that one for now. And one um, one band I just didn't get time to, to go in deep enough on on the research was uh, Sadus with Swallowed in Black. So much like Fate's Warning, Sadus are a band I've never put the time in with. Not for any any negative reason. I mean, particularly because of their bass work, it's ridiculous. I haven't, but yeah, that's one I just didn't quite get to. So apologies for that. My my research does have some gaps in it. But okay, one legendary album from this this time period that I you know know very well is Annihilator with their second album, Never Neverland. So the second Annihilator album sees Jeff Water actually flesh out the lineup with a full band. So we have a, a bass player and a second guitarist. Also, there's a switch in vocalists. We get Coburn Farr come in, who gives us a much more kind of melodic take than Randy Rampage had on the previous album. And overall, Never Neverland, I rate as a very good Annihilator album. But it just it has a few things. I mean, it doesn't quite have the kind of aggressive edge Alison Hell has. It is a more melodic release. It also has like an increase in the silliness in the lyrics. Like particularly like the opener, Fun Palace, is is quite over the top. And despite its absolutely brilliant riffing, some of the vocal delivery like definitely sets it is really cheesy and then you get complete ridiculousness late in the album like Kraft Dinner uh, very much uh, selling these guys as a Canadian band but like the highlights of this album are incredible the aforementioned Fun Palace has some of my favourite ever Annihilator riffs Road to Ruin is an all time like classic Jeff Waters solo and then we get some really exciting stuff in the middle of the album like Never Never Landed and Periled Eyes but Never Never Land has a really interesting progression in Paradise is more all over the place and very stop-start, but a lot of those various moments are really interesting. And there's still, much like with the first album, that great use of bass guitar really high in the mix. The drumming is this really constant driving force, allowing like a lot of the other instruments to go off and be a bit more kind of widdly and self-indulgent in places and it's just really well crafted and there's a reason a lot of these songs like you know still sit in the annihilator uh live catalog issue is and um i think like this is going to come up more but this doesn't quite stand out as like compared to the two albums i'm going to talk about next you can see why this might have got buried historically like it's 
it's kind of, as I say, it's more melodic for them. And the next band we were covering are certainly not, they would not be described in that style. Yeah, so the next album is Deicide's self-titled debut, Deicide, which, like, much like that obituary debut, it is another, like, absolutely legendary staple of um, of death metal. It is very much, I'd say, like, the reigning blood of death metal, this album. It's 30 minutes of just absolutely intense pummeling throughout like it steve ashheim's drumming is really front and center like very aggressive throughout the hoffman brothers do these fantastically evil sounding riffs and like with great like like kind of nasty whammy bar solos thrown in glenn benson's vocal performance is like this really cool, clear, but quite low growl with a couple of, back in the day when this was more acceptable, a couple of like affected voices thrown in. Um, and it particularly stands out as that moment on Dead by Dawn where there's a second like echoey voice sh- shouting uh, of the Necronomicon. And the thing that this band had over the, you know, the other death metal staples at the time was these guys were the satanic one and this album is absolutely obsessed with talking about the devil and jesus etc and we get the start of um glenn bentonisms i remember shelby of uh ulfar pointed this out in an interview of like wanting to write a book of all the amazing words that glenn benton has invented like track five blasphera Therion, which is definitely not a thing <laughs> Oh, or the final track, Crucifixation, which I kind of love. Like that is, that is spot on. But yeah, Deicide are another band who I think will always be slightly hampered, much like Annihilator, for coming out the gate as strong as they ever would. This album is just like wall to wall excellent death metal riffing, and they're a band who were massively suited by that, like, sub-four-minute, really intense songs, like, no kind of breaks for anything outside of, outside of just, you know, throwing, in you know, a nasty-sounding solo, there's no acoustic passages or anything like that, it's just wall-to-wall, solid, blasphemous death metal. <laughs> Take your 
close out the year with another amazing album uh, just a year after their debut obituary follow it up with cause of death where um the lineups changed a little they brought in uh, frank watkins on bass and james murphy on lead guitar and just everything about this album for me is a step up i know as i say many see uh, slowly where rot as their peak for me cause of death is my absolute favorite and actually an album me and rob went into great detail on the first episode of this podcast so if you want to hear a more in-depth review go back to that one um but yeah like for me it's the the massive upping of the guitar tone in this like the the riffs just sound so much more solid and massive because of that that change in production style and also coupled with like james murphy's lead guitaring is just so above alan west's like his solos on this are absolutely amazing like checks tracks like uh turn inside out or the title track or um chopped in half there are so many absolutely brilliant bits of lead guitaring um that idea as well like we've I think we've had a few arms that have done this. I've mentioned up to now of like dropping a cover in halfway through the the runtime. Controversial, but I fucking love that Celtic Frost Circle of Tyrants is in here. Don't know if I prefer it to the original. I think I probably prefer the Celtic Frost version slightly, but it's a really well done cover. And finally, it's like the package is really complete. Like Cause of Death has. An amazing album cover as well. So it, it for me, it's just obituary at the absolute top of their game. Um, and sadly, for like probably something they'd never quite top. But still, yeah, for for the year nineteen ninety, if you compare to what other death metal was out at the time, this was really, yeah absolute cream of the crop all right that brings us on to 1991 so i think the way i'll split these episodes up is to do all of um so 86 to 91 as one episode and then uh 92 through to 95 as the next because you're going to see like the the classic releases start to get really really densely packed so Roadrunner put out a hell of a lot of albums this year. I will say I am completely ignorant of a whole pile of uh, full lengths. Uh, Upside Down's Cross is self-titled, Skin Chamber's Wound, Secker, Love Shim, Railway, Railway 2, Power Surge, uh, was that 1990? Like, um, yeah, just a whole ton that like I- I've never heard of any of these bands. Cerebral Fix and Last Crack. I don't know whether these are like what genre they're in, but these are ones that just totally passed me by. Ones I'm more familiar with, Believer put out Sanity Obscured, which is, you know, that kind of more Christian technical thrash. Crimson Glory put out their third album, Strange and Beautiful, which I haven't got to yet, but I am interested in checking out. But yeah, let's get into some of the absolute classics from this period. So one of the really early releases this year was Deicide's Legion, their excellent follow-up to their self-titled debut. Uh, I think the, the the big debate with Deicide really is like whether you prefer the first two albums. And honestly, 
they're about on a par for me. They're both pretty incredible. The only downside to this one is the really stupid uh, intro to Satan's spawn of the kind of evil noises with sheep in the background. But the actual track well and truly makes up for it. And yeah, th this album is, is another... Like, it's even more intense. It's only 29 minutes. Like, possibly possibly I used that uh, Rain in Blood metaphor too early. Like, it would equally apply here. It's very much the same sort of approach as the previous album. It's just, like, the band have clearly got a little bit better at playing. The production is more suited to them. And this might be kind of where we see a bit of an evolution in death metal of finally, like, recording people are starting to get the hang of getting these albums down. Like... If you compare this to, say, Slowly Rot two years earlier, it sounds pretty damn... Like, like, that's way rough around the edges than Legion is. And it, it equally is the same point in time. We're coming up to, like, necroticism for Carcass. So, yeah, like, the tone of albums is getting that much better. And, and yeah, Legion, if you've not got it, is it is essential uh, to any death metal fan's collection. Uh in a similar vein, uh, we get Gorgut's Considered Dead debut, which, considering Gorgut's reputation now, Considered Dead is an interesting one, because really, it's like an early death worship album. Really well put together. Like, it, it is still a really decent album. It's just the case of they didn't really have any original flair on this, which isn't remotely true about anything they put out after this point. But it's really interesting to see, like, where the band came from. An absolutely incredible album that comes out at this point in time is Sepultura's Arise. So, while I guess they're still rooted in thrash metal, there's something about Sepultura that always, like, set them apart and kept them cool, even deep into, like, the death metal era. And I think it's just, like some of the inventiveness and some of the heaviness they brought in with particularly like this album and the previous one something that's quite an uh, interesting addition on this album i think isn't quite so there in the previous one is we get a lot of igor doing a lot of interesting grooves on the toms like these these like long rolling sections um throughout each song that like is often not echoed by the guitars or anything and like that's the cool kind of like groove or catchy bit of any track like particularly say like the the first riff in desperate cry the other thing that's really upped on this album is like uh we really get max's vocals like they sound like he will sound through soulfly and various uh projects from then on on this one and they finally got a recording that really captures them in all their glory this sounds massive this album like the drums have a really big sound to them that low end like chug of max's guitar is really clear um andreas kisser's lead tone sounds like way more kind of like in your face and over the top than it did on the previous album oh and there's a cover to match it like arise has an absolutely excellent cover of this like hideous monstrous creature slash building thing it's just it's something that's upsetting to look at and becomes more upsetting the longer you stare at it it is a perfect cover for this kind of like angry intense scary music yeah it just fits so well for these like hideous details coming out of the artwork the longer you stare so the thing i was saying with beneath the remains is 
doubly drawn Arise. Arise is but like side A, I believe side A takes us up to track five subtraction, is utterly perfect. And then side B is pretty good. Like first five tracks are incredible. Arise, Dead Embryon Excels, Desperate Cry, these are all absolutely like the best writing Sepultura ever did. And then it gets a like then it doesn't quite live up to that throughout. But those those five tracks are just something else. And, you know, coming from Brazil and like not being part of the major thrash scene, but being able to drop something this revolutionary important to the genre, this late on in it as well, is like it can't really be overstated enough. It's that this band was so important and I think Arise probably is the real peak of that. <laughs> sees the debut of uh, Yonkers New York based Immolation with Dawn of Possession. So Dawn of Possession is far from the best work Immolation would ever do. I feel they're a band that pretty much came out the gate with what they wanted to do in mind like the core of uh, Ross Dolan on bass and vocal vocals and uh, Robert Vigner on guitars has gone on throughout the band and um, they they very much just been you know, refining and refining their sound, much like, say, Bolt Thrower from, like, their second album onwards. And Dawn of Possession, like, Ross's vocals aren't quite as low or guttural as they'll get. The riffs aren't kind of as as complex or um, that kind of intensity they have later on. Like, they, But there still is that kind of 
immolation sounds them. Immolation are a band I've always had in my mind in terms of like the classic death metal. They were always a bit more foreboding. They're kind of evil in a different way to Deicide. They're a very kind of dark sounding band, but there's something more ominous and apocalyptic about Immolation's writing. It, it, I guess it's more atmospheric, and um, they, they sort of had that even from the get-go with, with Dawn of Possession. Um, the album covers, like, it fits with it well, this kind of a series of angels being attacked by demons over a kind of, uh, like, kind of stormy, uh, like, dark red and sky. It, it, yeah, it's, it's cool looking, and... The album sounds really decent. The only real problem is, like, uh, the drumming has this sort of, like, wet fud to it. It doesn't really have much power. And consider, like, later Immolation will be so much about that sort of precision riffing. Like, this is where it's kind of let down. Also, I've seen the drummer Craig Similowski uh, went on to... Well, he's still in Dismas, so I guess fuck that guy. Um, which is kind of a shame, but... Yeah, he's only on the first two albums after that. Uh, <laughs> after that, hopefully, yeah, they, they distance themselves from that dude. But yeah, like, Dawn of Possession, certainly not, like, a high point for Immolation, but it's still a great album, and really they're one of those bands who have never put a foot wrong. This uh, year also sees another band we've discussed a lot take a really interesting change in direction. Pestilence put out their third album, Testimony of the Ancients. So there's quite a drastic lineup change in this. Uh, Martin Van Drunen's left the band, and we've they've also brought in uh, Cuban bass player Tony Choi uh, to round up the lineup. Patrick uh, Mamely is now doing the vocal duties, and it's one of the one of the core problems with Testimony is like you have to get past the fact. Patrick is not as good a vocalist as Martin Van Drunen. His vocal approach is kind of a fine, like, mid-range death metal screen, but it doesn't have, like, any of the power that Martin has. And, and it's kind of an unfair comparison, because Martin is well and truly one of the greats. But the big thing that's changed in this album is we they've brought Tony Choi into the fold. This album came out a month after Atheist's Unquestionable Presence, which he helped out on, and I think he'd been involved briefly with, like, Cynic ahead of that point in time. So there is this kind of slight jazzy leaning coming into the band, and something you notice right away, the first two albums, bass wasn't really a thing. In this, the bass is suddenly, like, really complex and all over the place. Like, Tony Joy is one of the greats of death metal bass playing despite only being on a few albums like his performances are always utterly incredible and really inventive and that's very much true on this um actually as well this album corrects the issues i had with the guitar tone from the previous album um they just they sound more more full and more in your face for like the heavy like riffing moments the other kind of change they they brought in with this is they've started engaging with being a bit more progressive like the open track uh the secrecies of horror has some like sort of keyboard stabs over the top of one of the main riffs in it and you know previously they didn't really feel like a band that would fuck around with keyboard playing but actually this album they get really into it in a big way of and i don't think this works i think i've criticized it quite often is they've um stuck between every song 
a 30 second to a minute long interlude of like often keyboards at one point with soulless later on it's like a bass instrumental it's very impressively played but the problem is these kind of they're meant to be these sort of like interludes but they kind of feel slightly irrelevant to me like the flow is slightly broken by them and when you look at the album as a whole it's only just over 40 minutes long if you remove the eight interludes it's only like a 35 minute long album which is fine that's that's a good length for an album but when there's only eight tracks of this kind of technical style it feels like unnecessarily padding in another almost 10 minutes just to have something else there i don't know it is a very weird choice but if we just take it as the core of the the kind of the proper tracks this is some really well done death metal and i think that increase in like the interest of the bass playing the solos getting more flashy the guitar sounding thicker and heavier really makes up for the ever so slightly like lacking vocal work also they finally got a good album cover like the the front cover of this it's i'm not quite sure what's going on in it but it looks pretty cool um yeah so overall testimony for ancients is of the ancient sorry it is a pretty high point for pestilence I, I think it's a very interesting album and certainly less divisive than the one that would uh, come next actually one of my main criticisms is they just should have turned tony Choi up more in the mix he's I think if he was more front and centre, he'd steal the show in a way like, or or get that kind of status in a way that like Alex Webster sort of has for Cannibal Corpse of that level of intense bass playing over already intense music. <laughs> Come on. 
obviously at this point in time, death metal is starting to get really interesting and evolving from those initial roots. Next up, we have another band from New York, this time Long Island, Suffocation with their debut, Effigy of the Forgotten, which I don't need to go into much detail on it. It's been talked about ad nauseum, like including on my own podcast with, with Rob, like uh, about 20 episodes back. That This album is like just monumental in what it did for death metal. It has influenced so much afterwards in terms of adding in technicality, adding in like more brutality as well, getting lower and heavier. Like it has influenced bands to simultaneously go faster and go slower with like the kind of whole group of slam bands coming out of those kind of breakdown riffs and then stuff that's really taken sort of so Terence Hobbs's more intense guitar work and and work that into their sound. I think Frank Mullen is, you know, legendary death metal vocalist. His his very well enunciated low gutturals, like the guy is an absolute beast and like the the drum performance on this amazing it's just a really, really brilliant album, capped off with amazing Dan Seagrave cover. Yeah, incredible stuff. So we get to end this year on a real high with Death's Human uh, put out in October 1991. Uh, so Death had previously been on Combat Records and had moved to Roadrunner. And it's an interesting one because this is, I'd say it's where we really see the evolution with Death. Like with Leprosy, like their second album, they put out like a flawless masterpiece of that early wave of death metal. But then Spiritual Healing, I always found was a bit of an awkward album for them. It it, it doesn't quite hold up to the other six of their discography, in in my opinion. I know I know it definitely has its defenders, but it it felt like the transitional one. And with Human, he recu- recruits a totally Chuck that is sorry recruits a totally new lineup of. Paul Masterville and Sean Reinhardt, who had recently put out a series of kind of legendary demos with Cynic back when they were more of a straight-up death metal band, and brilliant fretless bass player Steve DiGiorgio from Sadus at that point in time. Yeah, I really do need to go back and, and get my head around Sadus. I can't believe I missed them. And and they put together the this lineup in Human is probably my all-time favourite death lineup. I They've had a lot of great ones over the years, and fortunately with the part two of this, I'll be able to talk about a couple more albums. But Human, for any flaws in the album, is just the coolest lineup. Like Sean Reinhardt was this incredibly interesting drummer. Um, Paul had his own very unique guitar style. You know, we obviously don't need to go into how brilliant uh, Steve is at bass. And that coupled with... Chuck's clearly like evolving ambition trying to become a band that stepped away from that core like scary death metal stuff into something uh, at least in like his view a bit more like high-minded um and they put together something that while still at his heart a very heavy death metal album has got those slight jazz leanings, those slight progressive touches. This is before the songs got kind of more self-indulgent structurally. Like, nothing on this album crosses, like, four minutes in length, actually. It's a very, very compact, like, tightly written album. And, you know, has a lot of, like, classic death metal riffing, particularly in tracks like Suicide Machine or Together as One. But when we get into the instrumental passages, that's where things get way more complex the bass playing stops being that thing where it's just you know to flesh out the guitar tone and starts 
really kind of forging its own path in the music, much like with the the Testament album earlier in the year, um, and that, that kind of fretless tone. The fretless tone really works on this album, actually. I'm not always the biggest fan of fretless bass playing, but on this album it just sounds utterly amazing. I hope I'm not wrong in it being a fretless. Um, and the, yeah, there's like the the thing with this album actually more so than any one before is suddenly the rhythm section of death sound like an absolute kind of like technical powerhouse, and it's not everything kind of um, behind like the guitars or the the thing you're listening to, and then everything else. Chuck as well has like somewhat softened his vocals there. They're a bit more like he's always had a fairly intelligible voice, but they're like even more intelligible in this and slightly less harsh, which kind of fits the music. But like the Scott Burns production for this is still kind of really gnarly and nasty. Like it's it's quite a um, it's quite a kind of brutal sounding album, and sort of coupled with the kind of off color like abstract album cover. All of that leads this still being kind of scary, despite that move away from um, the kind of the lyrical content of the early album. So tracks like uh, "Vacant Planets," like "Flattening of Emotion," "Cosmic Sea," these are not your standard death metal stuff. He's moving into more philosophical and political realms with um, with, with his lyric writing. Also, I just referenced "Cosmic Sea" in his lyric writing. It's it's an instrumental, and uh, like, is that the first deaf instrumental? I think it might be. Um, yeah, so that's like also showing the evolution. Like, it's a really like that's a really interesting layered track where they play around with a lot of ideas that wouldn't have made it into the first three albums. Stuff as well, like bits of clean tone guitar working their way in there. It, like, Human is an absolutely masterful album, and. Yeah, a real high point in Death's, like, well, spectacular career. Okay, I've somewhat confused myself here. I think possibly this actually came out on Relativity Records first rather than Roadrunner. They might have picked it up slightly later, although apparently they put out a version in the same year. So where the research for this one becomes a bit messy. But Roadrunner was just the catalyst for this episode. They're not a particularly good label, and this isn't about celebrating them. It's about celebrating, like, that kind of amazing trend in extreme metal like we can see some problems in roadrunners pushing of things because you notice same point in time this label has fates warning and crimson glory who definitely didn't get as big as queen's rights and dream theater who uh i think on emi something like that um and they're definitely a trend chaser but that's why they're a good catalyst for this because we can see what was really popular in each of these subgenres at any point in time like that explosion of, like new york death metal in 91 and then like the kind of you know interesting heavy end of thrash that kind of got popular in 89 through 90 like they're a great catalyst for for showing that um so yeah uh, i'll be putting another a second part up of this in two weeks i think i'm just going to immediately record it straight after this i just didn't want this episode to be three hours long so as usual if you want to get in touch and let me know any classics i missed any of that list of bands or i had no idea who they were let me know if any of those are like personal favorites because yeah i'd be really interested to know what kind of didn't quite end up popular despite the kind of relatively major label success at this time period 
Um, okay, so if you want to get in touch, it's uh, philsbreakfastmetal at gmail.com. Um, Phil's Breakfast Metal on Facebook or at Breakfast Metal on Twitter. Uh, yeah, get in touch and yeah, let me know what you think. Anyway, thanks a lot for listening. Hey,